0: This is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and I know some of you are, are here this morning, you've been invited by other people, you don't normally come along to church, and that's great. Uh, not great that you don't normally come, but great that you're here today. Uh, we're pleased that you're here, and uh, hopefully this whole exp- we don't usually have the choir, but hopefully this whole experience is, is really positive for you. It is, you know, when you step back and think about it, it is a funny thing that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Some of us are so used to it, but we remind ourselves that today is a day And of course, we do this every Sunday, but today of all days, we're celebrating the fact that tens of thousands of kilometers away, just outside the city of Jerusalem, there's an empty tomb. And the tomb's empty because that was the tomb that Jesus of Nazareth was laid in. And we believe that tomb's empty because He's not in it, because He's risen from the dead. And we believe that even though that event happened... Thousands of years ago, different continents, totally different culture, it profoundly, profoundly affects everything. That it changes our lives, it changes our world, and it changes our future, changes where everything is going, all because of this empty tomb. I went and visited that tomb a few years ago, spent a week in Jerusalem saw all of the uh, sights that you see when you're there. And one Sunday morning, our tour guide took us to this, to this tomb, uh, the, the tomb where Jesus was laid. And we, we, our bus pulled up there, and we could see in, but we couldn't get in because the uh, gate was closed. We didn't realize this at the time, but apparently Sunday mornings, the tomb's closed, which I thought was kind of ironic, you know, that Jesus' tomb's closed on Sunday. Sorry, you can't get in. You know? <laughs> There's something strangely ironic about that. But anyway, we looked through the bars, and the way the whole thing is set up, it was this beautiful, lush garden. These lovely flowers, all perfectly manicured. And we couldn't see, but at the back, around the back, there is this hole cut in the rock, which is apparently where Jesus was laid. It's just a lovely setting, places there to reflect and to meditate. It's just this pristine environment. The only problem with it is, that's not the actual tomb. (laughs) And that's a bit of a downer. When you realize that, but it is almost certainly not the tomb. I mean, every scholar, archaeologist has discredited this as the actual site. It's likely to be further down the road. And nobody knows exactly where the actual tomb is, but it's almost certainly not there. And yet, it is interesting, people flock to this garden tomb. That's what it's called, the garden tomb. And they come there. And I suppose, even though it might not be the actual tomb where Jesus is buried, it's still a lovely place to reflect and to remember and to think about jesus resurrection i think part of the reason that that site has such appeal is because it's a garden and in the bible it's not a very well known fact but the gospel of john tells us jesus was buried in a garden so i mean let alone the fact that there probably wasn't a garden there two thousand years ago anyway but it's nice to sit there and just imagine what this might have been like but in the gospel of john and john's the only writer who tells us this which is interesting But in the Gospel of John, we get this picture of Jesus being buried in a garden. John chapter 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. It's, it's the beauty of having four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that when one of them and only one of them mentions something, it often has significance. Why would John be the only Gospel writer to tell us that Jesus was buried in a garden? All the other Gospel writers tell us that there was a hole cut in the rock, and Jesus was buried in a tomb, but John makes a point of saying, this happened in a garden, And I wonder if there's more going on in this passage than we might initially think. I wonder if John's got something in mind here, maybe beyond the surface of the literal surroundings where Jesus was buried. Sure, he may have been buried in a garden, but maybe there's a deeper association. It's difficult for us to get our heads around, but in the Jewish psyche, when you talk about a garden, there was a very, very important garden in the whole belief system of Judaism. It's an association not many of us make. But in the Jewish mind, to talk about a garden, to have reference to Jesus being buried in a garden, to place emphasis on a garden, is going to trigger this connection with a garden that appears right at the beginning of the whole story. This Garden of Eden. That's just the connection that people are going to make when you start talking about a garden, you're going to go back to the beginning of the story where this garden appears. And most of you, even if you haven't been around church much of your life, you've probably heard the Garden of Eden. You often think of it in this kind of mythical way, this kind of fairy tale way. We have a picture of Adam and Eve in our mind, frolicking around in the bushes, butterflies, squirrels on their shoulder, doing not much at all. You know, that's the sort of picture of the Garden of Eden that we have. But it's interesting in the Bible, you, you get this idea that the Garden of Eden was a hive of activity. It was teeming with life. There was heaps of animal life there. And humanity were placed in this garden right at the beginning of the biblical story. Humanity, man and woman, placed in the garden to do something. They were placed there to cultivate the garden. They were placed there to care for it, to nurture it, eventually to fill and subdue the whole earth. People are given a mandate, they're given a task, they're given a job to do. Eventually God wants the whole earth to be like the Garden of Eden. So it's a place of busyness, it's a place of of productivity. And the Garden of Eden sort of represents that ideal of how things are supposed to be. And we all carry around in our head that idea of how things are supposed to be, how it was in the beginning, how it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be in your life, how it's supposed to be at your work, what kind of boss your boss is really supposed to be? What kind of employees you're really supposed to have? What kind of family life you're really supposed to have? We have this sense of ideal. That's the only way we know when things fall short of our ideals. That's how we know when things aren't the way they're supposed to be because we carry around in our heads a sense of how it is supposed to be, what the ideal is, what the picture is. That's like the Garden of Eden. It's how things were supposed to be in the beginning. These relationships that were created perfectly between humanity and God, between humanity and one another, and even between humanity and the physical earth. This mandate to care for, to nurture, to cultivate the physical earth, everything was just happening just as it was supposed to. So I wonder if, in the Gospel of John, that John is deliberately wanting us to make some connection. Between this garden tomb where Jesus is buried and the very first garden, the Garden of Eden. Whether he's wanting to say something about who Jesus is by reminding us of this garden. Maybe this is telling us something about what Jesus came to do. Maybe this is telling us something about the whole purpose of his death and his resurrection. It's got something to do with that garden in the beginning. But before we get there, I want to take you to another garden in the Bible. This one's in Mark chapter 14. It's a completely different scene in the Bible, but it also takes place in a garden, not far from the garden where Jesus was buried. This is a garden called Gethsemane. Mark 14 verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. yet not what I will, but what you will. It's such a different picture from the Garden of Eden where things were pristine, where things were in order, where relationships were perfect. You have now the scene where Jesus is in a garden and he's struggling and he's suffering. I think the language even suggests that he's having something like an anxiety attack in the middle of this garden. We don't like to think about Jesus in that way, do we? prefer to think about him as this triumphant hero marching stoically to the cross, unperturbed by what's going on around him. But in fact, Jesus was struggling and he was stumbling and he was anxious and he was overwhelmed by what was coming ahead of him. What's happened between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane? It's what the Bible calls sin. And that word, it's difficult to talk about because it's so loaded with all kinds of baggage today. It's basically a joke word for most people. But sin in the Bible, it's not about breaking commandments and breaking rules and, and, and just doing good and bad stuff. It's primarily about a relationship that's gone wrong. Sin is about a relationship between us and God that's broken down. And this is what happened right back in the beginning. It doesn't take long in the story before Adam and Eve, first human beings, their relationship with God became twisted, distorted, perverted because of their own selfishness. It's interesting though, humanity didn't just become atheists. You know, Adam and Eve didn't just stop believing in God. They just started dealing with Him on their terms. They didn't say, well, we don't need God anymore. We don't want God. They just simply got up. They just did what they wanted to do and basically brought God down to their level and just lived their life and God just had to fit in around the edges. that sound familiar to anybody? That's basically how we live, isn't it? A lot of the time, it's Kiwi culture. See, I don't think, I may be wrong, I don't think. There are that many pure atheists in the world. I could be wrong about this, but I've got a theory. I don't think there's... I mean, I know there's the Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris type atheists, but I actually don't think there's that many pure atheists, utterly, adamantly disbelief in God. I think most people just get on with life and don't think about it and deal with God when and if and how they want to. So he's out of your mind most of the time until you get in trouble. Or until you desperately need something and he has to come through. It was interesting, I read a survey, it was done a few years ago in the States, of 3,000 teenagers on their, on their beliefs about God and spirituality. And the authors concluded that the predominant view of God among that age group was somewhere between a butler and a therapist. Interesting, eh? Those were the dominant sort of images they, 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 they drew out of the study. A butler and a therapist. And doesn't that ring true? See, I don't think it's so much that we disbelieve in God, it's just that we treat Him like a butler and a therapist. So as long as my life's going okay, and work is fine, relationships are fine, finances are fine, and health is fine, those are generally the biggies, God can just sit over in the corner, out of mind, and I don't really need Him, like a good butler should, stay in the kitchen. But when I need Him, boy, I better click my fingers and He better arrive, and He better show up And he better do exactly what I'm asking him to do. See, it's a cosmic butler. And then, of course, God the therapist. When we're feeling down and we're feeling bad, what we want is God to make us feel a bit better. Just to soothe us and speak gently to us and sing a lullaby so we just have nice fuzzy feelings. This is what we want. Now, that is about, I think, as close as you can get to a biblical definition of sin. Sin. It is not disbelieving in God and it's not just breaking commandments but it's distorting what a relationship should be. It is taking a relationship between us and God that is supposed to be God-centred, our lives orbiting around Him and us centering ourselves around Him. And it's just twisting that into something completely different where we remake God in our image and have Him serve us, deal with us on our terms, thanks very much, and shove off when we don't need Him. That's sin. It's a relationship twisted, distorted, and perverted. And when that relationship between us and God is like that, we can no longer relate in healthy ways to one another. When the vertical is out of alignment, the horizontal is out of whack too. We can no longer have the kind of relationships we might think we are. We can't have the kind of relationships, the kind of intimacy, the kind of relational health that is possible when our lives are aligned with God. The whole thing's thrown out. Ultimately, all of creation is thrown out. It's like the Garden of Eden has got weeds growing right through it. It's been left uncultivated and uncared for. And so we end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's into that sin-filled world that Jesus steps. It's the incredible thing. He didn't just come and hover above the ground. He came and entered right into it, into all the mess, all the muck, all the filth of this world all the breakdown in relationship, he stepped into it. And he saw it. He lived among it. And here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. What I think is there's an interesting parallel here between what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane and what Adam and Eve do in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve face this choice. Is it going to be God's will or is it going to be their will? And and, uh, you know what they they choose. They choose my will. My will be done. That's, that's where the story comes off track, right at the beginning. Adam and Eve basically say, my will be done, thanks very much. My stuff, my plans, my life. I'll follow God so long as He fits in with what I want to do. At the point where our paths diverge, I'm going my own way. Here's Jesus in the garden. And when you read the Garden of Gethsemane story in view of the Garden of Eden story, I think Jesus is reenacting the Adam and Eve story. I think He's reliving that same moment. I think there's a sense of deja vu about the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's the second Adam. Come along. He's facing the same choice. It's not about eating an apple, but it's still about doing the will of God or not. Jesus faces the same choice. Is he going to say, your will be done, God, or my will be done? And and, and you know the famous words he says, not my will, but yours. Talking to God, but yours. Be done. Jesus makes a different choice. And he undoes what humanity stuffed up in the beginning. He relives it and he comes to that junction and he chooses God's will and not my own. And you know the story didn't end there because he made that choice. That was a tough choice because it led him to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all that relational breakdown that's occurred between you you and God, between me and God, all of our stuff. That's what you didn't see in that movie, The Passion of the Christ. You can get a glimpse of the physical horror of the cross, but what's happening when Jesus hung on that Roman cross for six hours one Friday, hung up like a piece of meat in the baking Mediterranean sun, finally died of asphyxiation, as he's hanging there, what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening beyond what you can see? is that he's absorbing everything that is wrong with you. Everything that is wrong with me. Every way in which we have twisted and perverted and stuffed up our relationship with God. All of your junk, all of your baggage, all of my stuff, everything, all of it. He's absorbing it. He's absorbing it upon himself. He's taking all of your failures, all of your fears. Can you get your mind around that? Not just your the person sitting next to you too. Have a look at them. Mate, there's a lot to take on. All of that stuff, Jesus takes it. All of our imperfections, all of those past regrets you have. Every single way, every single time, every single thought, every single bad decision, all the ways in which we have just treated God as a butler and a therapist. All of our sin, Jesus just absorbs it. He takes it. Somehow, I don't know how that happened, but somehow he absorbs it. In fact, Bible goes so far as to say he became sin. He actually became, I don't know how, that, but he became sin. So loaded down with all of our rubbish. And he died for it. And so the story hangs in the balance. And so we arrive back at the garden tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Read you a few more verses from John chapter 20. Here's what happened. Keep all of this stuff about the garden in your mind because I think it's significant. John chapter 20, verse 11. First person at the tomb that morning, Mary. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over into the tomb to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Isn't that a fascinating scene? It's one of those details about Easter Sunday morning you don't often hear. But it's intriguing to me that here's Mary, this bizarre sort of mix-up. Mary's at the tomb. She's already talking to angels. I mean, that's bizarre enough, isn't it? That's this that's crazy stuff. I mean, it's good, but it's crazy. She's talking to these angels. And then she turns around, she sees Jesus... But she doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. And I think what's happening here is that John, who wrote this, you know, when he says she thought he was the gardener, it's almost like he's winking at us. You know, he's like, she thought he was the gardener. What's going on with the garden theme here? She thinks he's the gardener. What if that wasn't a mistake? What if Jesus was the gardener? Not in a literal sense, not like he had the job of cleaning the garden. But what if he was the gardener? There's a guy called Albrecht Dürer. He's an artist. He did this etching. A series of etchings, actually, called The Small Passion. And one of them, a little tiny little etching, is called Jesus the Gardener. And in, on this etching, he actually pictures this scene of Mary before Jesus. And Jesus is dressed as a gardener. I think we've got a picture of it, you might be able to put that up. Jesus is dressed as a gardener. He's got his gardening hat on. He's got his gardening shovel in his hands. And it's sort of almost comical, this picture of Jesus being a gardener. But I think that's possibly what's going on. Not necessarily that Jesus was wearing this gardening outfit, but John's wanting us to realize that in the whole flow of the biblical story, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, now to the Garden Tomb, Jesus is playing the role of a gardener. See, in the beginning, that's basically what he made humanity to do and to be, to be a gardener, to cultivate the earth, to bring forth this new light. And then Jesus himself walks out of this tomb as the one who is bringing about this new life, as the one who is cultivating the garden of this world, cultivating the garden of God, cultivating the garden of our own life. Jesus has come as the one who is bringing new out of old, who is chopping back the weeds, pruning back the bushes, dealing with everything that's gone wrong in the world. He's absorbed all of our sin on the cross, upon himself taking it from us on himself and now he walks out on easter sunday as the one who's ready to get to work gardening jesus is ready for action he's coming out of the tomb and now he's coming to bring new life into god's world as this great gardener and the first place that jesus wants to start in this whole work of gardening this whole theme of gardening is in your life and mine that's where it starts as Jesus looks at our life and sees that often it is overgrown with all kinds of weeds and all kinds of stuff that shouldn't be there, thorns and thistles have grown up, we've just done our own thing, we've just gone our own way, and Jesus' desire is to come to us as a gardener. I don't know what your picture of Jesus is like, You get all kinds of ideas in our head, but what about thinking of him as a gardener, as someone who stands before us and says, I'm ready to get to work in your life, because I've taken your sin upon myself. And I've risen from the dead to conquer death, offer new life. I'm ready to get to work gardening your life, gardening your heart. I'm ready to come and renew. I'm ready to come and do an extreme makeover, garden edition. Here it is, Jesus the gardener. And that's the opportunity and that's the invitation. Not just Easter Sunday morning, but every single moment of your life. Jesus stands before you and he says, I'm ready to get to work in your life. I want to take away and forgive all that has gone wrong. All the ways that you've twisted and perverted that relationship with God. All the ways in which you've drifted from him, ignored him, treated him as a butler and a therapist, Jesus says, you know, that is in the past. I want to make you new. I want to come into your life, cultivate this incredible garden. I want to give you forgiveness. I want to lavish you with mercy. I want to draw you back into that relationship with God that you were created to have. That's the invitation. And from there, the incredible thing is Jesus renews the garden in our life so that we might join him in the work of gardening in the world. I don't find it an easy metaphor to work with either, because I personally hate gardening. But you get the idea, sticking with the garden theme, that Jesus cultivates the garden in our life so that we can get on mission with him and be a part of bringing about that Eden that things were supposed to be like in the beginning. And we do it through those three great virtues that the Bible talks about faith and love and hope. That's it. And that, that's why, you know, Christians have such a passion to tell others about this Jesus. Not because we're trying to force things down people's throats, but because we have received that renewal. And we desire so much for other people to experience that faith. We desire so much for other people to come into that relationship with God that we have, because we know this is what it means to be human. This is reclaiming our original intent. This is not just one option on the whole smorgasbord of religious ideas. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be in relationship with God, is to receive that embrace from Jesus and allow Him to cultivate our own heart and then join Him in this work of helping others come into that same faith. And showing love to others in Jesus' name. Extending that kindness. And you know, we pray before about Thomas and others. And that's what, a, that's what a church community should be. That's what it means to be part of a community like this. Not, not just coming to church on Sunday, but extending that love. Being a community of grace. Being the arms and, and, and the feet of, of Jesus in the world. Doing His work. Keeping the garden going. Cultivating, renewing, tending, and caring for it. And extending that hope as well. Faith and love and hope. Speaking about and embodying the incredible hope that the whole story has not yet reached its final scene. That's the reality. It's that even after the garden tomb and even with the ongoing work of Jesus in the world and in our own hearts, the story is to be continued. The story's still going on, and there's one more garden that I want to take you to in the Bible. We'll wrap up with this. One more garden right at the end, very last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22. Just a few verses. And again, listen to these verses in view of the whole garden idea and see if you can pick up what's happening here. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Where was the tree of life right at the beginning? In the Garden of Eden. The tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. It goes on to describe more about what that's like. The picture you get right at the end of the Bible here is of of a garden city. It's kind of urban language mixed in with garden language. But you get the distinct impression that what God's planning to do is bring about this Eden-like state. You get to the end of the Bible, and it starts to sound a lot like the beginning, but better. Because in the final new heavens and new earth, the final new creation when God restores all things, there's not even going to be the propensity to go wrong. There's not even going to be the the, the, the possibility of that relationship being wrecked again. It's going to be perfect and it's going to be forever. That's the final hope and that's what we are longing for. But it's not a vague whim and it's not just a flaky little hope. It's an assurance. We know that day is coming. We know Jesus is going to return, he's going to make all things new, and he's finally going to complete the project that he began way back in the Garden of Eden. Renewing our lives, renewing our relationship with God, that we will exist in perfect, reconciled relationship with God and with one another. That's the promise. That's the garden city that's yet to come. So as you think about these four gardens, the Garden of Eden, where it all started, the Garden of of Gethsemane, Jesus struggles and stumbles towards the cross. The garden tomb, where he rises from the dead as the gardener going forward to do God's work. And the garden city, where he's yet to make all things new. We know it's going to happen one day. Just reflect on where your life is in this whole story. Where are you sitting? Which garden are you in? What's the state of the garden of your own life? You know, some of you may never have even contemplated a relationship with God in your life. It may in the furthest thing from your mind. You've just got on with living, you've just done things you want to do, and, and that's just how it's been. And I want to encourage you today just to take one very simple step, and that's to begin a conversation with God. I'm not asking you today to come the whole the whole distance. Because I know for those of you that have just never even started the journey. That can be overwhelming. But just to begin a conversation, you don't even need to believe that God exists to just start that conversation. It might start with, God, I don't really know what I believe. I don't really know about this whole resurrection deal. I don't know about the cross and everything in the gardens and stuff, but but, but, but God, I want to know more and I just want to start this journey. God takes you right where you are just takes that very first step and he says, good enough, let's go. He'll take you from there and just let that conversation develop. But maybe today is just a day to start that conversation. Maybe you're a little further down the track and you've been exploring and you're interested and you know and you understand a few things and maybe today is a day for you to cross that line of faith and say, you know, I need this garden in my life restored and renewed. I need to take that step today. Maybe today, and what better day to do it than Easter Sunday, right? Resurrection Sunday. Maybe today is a day for you to have a conversation with God where you honestly come before Him and you go through your own death and resurrection. That's actually what it means to become a follower of Jesus. You die and you rise, just like Jesus died and Jesus rose. You go through this dying where you say, it's no longer my old life. I'm I'm leaving that behind. It's the old me. It doesn't mean you suddenly lose your personality and everything like that. It's just you're turning away from something. You're turning away from just a self-governed, self-directed life. And then there's a rising to a new life, a new life in relationship with Jesus, a new life in which you ask Him to forgive you, come and live within you by His Spirit, and begin that reconciled relationship with you. And that offer, he has done everything that needs to happen in order for that to happen. Nothing else needs to happen today. It's your move. It's your move. Jesus is standing here. He's the gardener. He's saying, I'm ready to get to work. I've died for you. I've risen for you. And now I'm asking you to die to your old life and rise to a new life. No special words. No magic formulas. No special actions you can do to make it happen. It's a conversation with God. It's the condition of your heart where you come honestly before him. Tell them exactly where you're at. Turn away from that old life and turn towards Jesus and allow him to put his arms around you, embrace you and say, welcome home. Now you're alive. You were dead, you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. And some of you, final category this morning, some of you have just drifted. And you may be a Christian, but you've drifted. And it happens easily. It happens over a long time. But as you sit here this morning, you know you're a long way from where you should be. You're a long, long way. And it's just gone cold and stale and your heart's not in it anymore. And for you, I just want to invite you to make today a day of renewal. It's nothing really that you do, but it's just returning to Jesus and allowing him to rekindle in you that faith that you had. Maybe you can remember though that day when you made the first commitment. When you were on fire, when you were really into it, but, but things have just plateaued and stagnated and just nothing's humming for you. I want to encourage you just simply and humbly to make this Easter Sunday a day of rededication and recommitment. Doesn't matter how far you've wandered, doesn't matter how deep the hole is, doesn't matter what addictions you've been into, doesn't matter how bad it's got. God is just so willing and so ready to embrace you. He doesn't want to hear your sorry speech. He doesn't want to you know, give you a, a big telling off before he makes it right. He just wants to wrap his arms around you and say, welcome home again. Every single time, so willing, and he's so able to do it. Just lavish upon you again that mercy and again that grace and say, all right, let's just pick up from where we were and keep on going. That invitation is yours this morning for those of you that have just had that inertia and you've become apathetic. Don't leave today without getting yourself back in that right place, being refilled with the grace and the power of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's available to you. It's available today. Would you pray with me? God, we just take this moment to come to you and and say honestly what is on our heart. God, I know that even in this room, there's such a, such a diversity of relationships with you, people at different points on their faith journey. And God, just now in the, in, in, in the stillness, we just take a moment to say to you what we need to say. Whether it's a very first step, very first word, whether it's a rededication of our lives, or whether even now it's a commitment to enter into that relationship with you for the very first time. We take this moment, Lord, to respond to what you have done on the cross in dying for us. We take this moment to respond to what you've done through your resurrection in rising for us. We thank you that Mary didn't make a mistake that morning that you intended to be seen as the gardener, the one who comes into our lives to make things new, to tear away the weeds and the thorns and thistles and plant new life. We open ourselves up to that this morning. Come and cultivate faith and love and hope within each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.